Tānandi is the Festival of Contemporary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art. The exhibition is at the Art Gallery of South Australia until the 30th of January 2022. You can view the virtual tour online at agsa.sa.gov.au. Thank you to everyone for making the effort to come along today. Uh, it's just terrific to have so many friends and new newfound friends in the audience. And also to all of the artists for travelling far and wide to come to Adelaide, to come down to Ghana country and to be with us to share their stories. We're really grateful to all of you um, for being here and for taking this opportunity to share with all of us here today. Um, there are further talks in the afternoon, but I'd just like to introduce um, the facilitator for the next for this panel um, is Renee Johnson, a Malak Malak woman from the Daly River region of the Northern Territory. Um, Renee, I've known for many years and have worked together on a, a deadly exhibition, Deadly in Between Heaven and Hell, <laughs> which was part of the Adelaide Festival. And um, really great admirer of, of Renee's work and really absolutely chuffed that she could come and facilitate this session uh, for us this morning. So thanks so much, Renee. And I'll let you introduce the artists. <laughs> Thank you, Nikki. Um, as as Nikki mentioned, we've worked together um, over the you know the life of my um, contact with the arts, um, and I just want to say I'm so thrilled and honoured that Nikki had approached me and asked me to facilitate today's session. Tanandi is such an amazing festival, um, and I'm really um, excited about being here. I'd like to acknowledge that we meet and gather on Ghana country and, and I respect the ongoing connection and cultural beliefs that Ghana people have to this beautiful land that we live on, some of us live on and where I work. I'd also like to acknowledge all First Nations people that are here today, writers, curators, artists, friends, family, and also acknowledge that you have strong connections back to your homelands and country and thank you so much for those that have travelled great distances to be here. It's uh, not, not been easy. Um, I'd also like to just acknowledge my family as well. Um, as Nikki mentioned, my mother was forcibly removed from Daly River and taken to a mission and then brought down to Adelaide at an, an early age. So we grew up here on Ghana country. It's been my family, my home. Um, but I just want to acknowledge my mother and my kinship system as well, the Marathio language group, and also acknowledge that I am part of the Stolen Generations. So, introducing the artists today, we have John Prince Siddon on the end there. Um, he's kindly stepped in today, so thank you, John. And um, we also have Margaret Babi, uh, who is here from the Warangari Aboriginal Arts Collective and uh, one of the makers of The Dreaming of the Birds, the metamorphosis of Boabs. We also have Gail Marbo, who is here to talk today about um, the making of Tegai. And also Sonia Rankin, artist and maker of Lakunmara Threads of Life. So, the topic for today is making immateriality, and I thought that sounds pretty cool. Um, so 
I did a bit of research into some of the concepts and definitions around making a materiality and I thought I'd share some of those ideas and then see how they relate back to these um, beautiful artists that we have here and the relationship to what some of those concepts might be. So as makers, uh, you know, we are creative um, actors and, and we make our own realities and, and, and pose our own traditions. Newcomb's paper, Rapport with Materiality, suggests that craft-making-based skills require practical and tool knowledge, coordinated hand-eye hand skills, and that they're closely linked with wider intellectual and cultural forms. I guess what I wanted to think about and ask was, as makers, what, what does it actually require to be a maker? Does anyone have any thoughts? Like what? <laughs> what does it mean to be a maker? When I think about making, I think about the use of sight, sounds and smells, what you hear, your hands, your physical body is, is used a lot. But what does it mean intellectually to, to connect the two? What does it mean? Uh, to me, it's um, connecting to the mole people. Because when we make things, it's that thing of like, well, for me, I ask them old people to guide me. Because sometimes making the structure that I've made for this exhibition, Tugai, it's, it, for me, I, it was a challenge because I've never made sort of big scale things before. And so stepping into it going, hmm, I love jigsaw puzzles. So we're like, okay, if I break this down, how would I connect all the pieces together? And so that was the challenge for me to go, okay, how do I do this? What materials do I need? And I went, that's right, my dad taught me how to tie knots. So I went like, okay, so let's do that. And so for me, it was connecting to the, my cultural practice of actually collecting the items firstly, and then to think about the story, because that's the biggest thing, is the story that connects it to what it means. And so for me, it's the stories and, and you know, and once again, connecting to old people. Yeah, and I guess also, you, you, we're not inherently talented to be making, so these skills are something that you possess and you build on and you work through, but you're also shown through connective learning, mm. through family, through generations, over time, so that connective learning is really important in terms of how we make and how you make. Yeah, for me, it, it is very much about connecting to culture um, and connecting to the, the traditions of um, Naranjeri weaving and I'm also Nudgeri and Nudgeri um, of the Mid-North also use the same reeds and the same weaving stitch. Um, so... For me it is, uh, and also for me who was <clears throat> removed from my family at seven months and put into a, a children's home and then into a foster home and, um, and I you know, got to know my family as I got older but um, my mum always would seek me out wherever we moved so um, I was always connected to her and family and, and weaving for me is really at the heart of um, what, I, what I do for my identity and um, knowing that my, my um, 
you know, my um, ancestors and grandparents and great-grandparents and so on, on the Naranjari side particularly, were all weavers themselves um, and also feather flower makers. I'm yet to do feather flowers. And the pieces that I made um, were a, a connection to using traditional reeds but also showing that I, I weave using other materials, living on the York Peninsula at Moonta and Narunga country, which I'm also Narunga, I don't have the reeds. So it was about, well, what other materials um, can I use? And they're using, I suppose, what would be garden waste and using plants from the garden. Um, and then also, um, not and, and, um, and I've used um, palm inflorescence, the palm seed branch and long pine needles and jacaranda stalks that people normally just rake up and put in the bin. Um, collect it all or I'll stop along the side of the road on Narunga country and, um, and gather them and get very strange looks as people are flying past at 100 kilometres going, what is that woman doing, you know? Um, or in the, you know, in the township, you know, at Moonta country, seaside town, you know, oh, there's a big jacaranda tree. I'll get really big stalks. So it, it's about being adaptable for me as well but, um, and using other kind of materials. Thanks, On. Um, I also imagine that there's some spatial implications when you're making as well, when you're having big pieces like Tag Eye and um, working in busy art centre with lots of people coming in and, you know, distractions and having to travel and having to find the materials that you need or, you know, I, I guess does it sometimes get a bit stressful, you know, in, in when you're trying to do and make uh, um, works, does it sometimes get a bit a bit too much sometimes on the body and, and things like that? Yes, it does. Especially if you're going to be at it 40 degree heat. <laughs> so, um, but we try and make it as uh, pleasant as possibly can. Uh, when we go out collecting boib nuts, we try and collect it as a family. So if you go fishing or something, there's always a tree around. Um, try to get everyone else involved. Uh, what else can I add? I didn't realize the heat was getting to me now. <laughs> Starting to remind me of home. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so it, it is. Um, it, it can be very stressful as, as you sit down and carve as well. Especially if you've got small ones around. They, you know, they, they want your attention. You've got to give them or... And if you got something coming up and you need, you know, need, need it to be done, what do you do? You give them attention or you, you know, bow cub. So um, it's, it's be, uh, you gotta split it, I suppose. Try to do it when they're at school or something. But um, yeah, it's, it's hard work, especially if you're gonna be sitting outside doing it and you can't cope bow cub under the air condition because of the mess you make. You know, just rather sit outside and do it. So yeah, John, is it similar? Do you do you find it sometimes it gets a bit too much, a bit stressful when you're trying to make with? Oh, especially um, back in um, Fitzroy, I get stressed when they bring couple of couple of bullock, bullock 
Buluk, Buluk skull from everywhere, from each, each station or community. And uh, all I tell them, hey, no, no, that's, that's, that's enough. I don't want to do no more skull. <laughs> I, got, I got a thousand already in my room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They were like, hey, come on, come on, we got a big hey. mob. You know? <laughs> yeah, that made me stretch really. And I guess, um, but it kind of leads to my next question. And before I ask it, I recognise that we are always on uh, nations and clan groups country. But for you in particular as artists, is there a difference between making on country your respective country and homeland as opposed to when you're away from country? Does, do you sometimes, I know with my nana, she comes down from Top End and it's cold and, you know, she's away from home. She still manages to have that memory, that connective uh, ability to still practice her making, but is there a difference? Are there differences? I think I'm, I'm lucky that I'm Narunga and I live on Narunga country. And, and I've been lucky to travel around Nudgery country of the mid-north with Annie Pat Warrior-Reed and working with Car Clues, who did the Aboriginal Artists in Schools program. And then that's, um, and that's been a real, I don't know, just a bonus and an honour and pleasure to travel with Arnie Patch. She was also a really dear friend of my, my mum's as well. And learning so much about the Nudgery stories and weaving, I suppose I'm sort of um, doing in the, pro it's sort of a bit of a revival of weaving for, for Nudgery as well. Um, and not sort of it's it's been documented, but there's not that kind of ongoing tradition of of weaving. So I suppose there's that stuff about um, bringing it back onto country. And I think it'd be beautiful to get Nudgery um, women and men together because it's a we're not in Jerry, it's men and women who are weavers. So it'd be nice to take it forward that way. And then I think when I've been to Naranjeri country and was was taught by Annie Ellen Trevoro, master Naranjeri weaver. And then I, oh, must have been about three or four years ago, they had a weaving retreat at Camp Coorong. So my um, eldest daughter and youngest daughter, we headed down there for the weekend. And that's, again, on like another level. So for me being South Australian, having the opportunity to be able to go on, on country, I connect in, in different ways. Narunga people weren't weavers, but I love using the material. And then what I do is um, use language name them if it's material I've collected from Narunga country and it's not, it's, it's using other weaving techniques, basketry techniques, I'll name them with Narunga language and then I'm using Naranjeri um, materials or the weaving stitch, I'll give it a Naranjeri name and then I recently made two, a piece for Uniting Country and they wanted a significant piece that would be like an acknowledgement to Nudgery Country that would be in their Clare office. So I gave it a Nudgery language. So for me, it's also about connecting with the language and doing that revival and maintenance. And for me, my maker space is... I'm really greedy because I've got one that's as big as this tent, but it's just mine. <laughs> and so... To come into my to my space, I just say, this is a place that is, is calm. If you come in and you have issues, leave them at the door, then you'll come in and have a cup of tea with me because I want my maker space 
to be a place where we make magic. It's like your baggage can stay outside until later until I ask you to bring it in, but until then, leave it at the door. Because for me, if you get bogged down with a lot of community stuff, because that comes a knocking at my door, I go, no, come in, leave it there, let's have a chat first. I want to see who you are as a person before, because I'll introduce you, I'll bring you in and I'll show you what I'm doing and I get you to help me do things, but you have to do it on my terms. And so for me, I also acknowledge, you know, the traditional owners of where I, I do my practice, but I also welcome them in the, their language into my space. Because it's like, well, I was born in Townsville, but my family come from Murray Island. And so when my Murray Island family come, well, we greet each other the way we would, you know, as, as if we were on the island, and they come and they teach me things too. And so for me, just having that connection to that space and having, you know, the, the benefit of community coming to my space is good because they know that I'm there. If they want me, they know where to find me because if I'm not at home, I'm only in one space and I'm there till as long as I can be until the security guard goes, I'm locking the gate again. Are you ready to go or do I wait for another hour? And I go, wait for another hour and then an hour, an hour, and it goes, okay, it's time to go. <laughs> So he'll walk me to my car. But it's a thing of like he, um, for me, just having a maker space and bringing the things in that I've collected because the bamboo I collect is from the, the patch that my dad grew at James Cook University. And so when I was little and going out harvesting that with him, it was that thing of like um, that brings back and just reminds me of why, you know, I love being out at James Cook University in the grounds because that was his job and I helped him. And so just going and getting that bamboo and bringing it back and just, you know, utilising it for, for my maps, I find that, you know, that still keeps my dad alive more so to me because I know that, you know, he's in the space with me and he's guiding me. And for me, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's still connecting to lots of things. Margaret? <laughs> now this one came to a shock. Um, to prepare for Tanity, I was actually in Darwin. So what happened was, thanks to Wangari for sending me a box of bulb, which they freighted up, and I freighted back to them once I was finished. So I was, couldn't connect to anything actually except the lounge. Um, <laughs> But back home, I'm back home now, back in Karanara. Um, it's, it's a very inspiring place to be. This is where we get our inspiration from. Um, I think you can see a lot through our artwork. Um, I was saying a lot of them at this point. Uh, it's Kana has been home for a long time for me, but um, we were originally not from there. So Kana's mom, mom's mom from Belgo in Western Australia, but she decided to go <laughs> and never went back. Sorry, I gotta laugh at that because today is like we don't want to let our family go. You know, I mean, they just go for a limit, but mom went and she never returned. <laughs> so. 
we're stuck in Kananara, which we were blessed to be in Kananara, actually. Um, Meruwangajarong people accepted us into the community. Um, Mom and dad went over there when they were young, so the family grew up there. And when we go back and when we, you know, on land, even though that's not our land or our, our place, we still feel like we're connected. Because so we grew up there and they accepted us. Thanks, Margaret. Um, my next question is kind of more around digital art and digital learning and the impacts that this might have on making as well. And in particular, you know, how important is it that the making skills are not lost and how do we ensure that they're preserved and understanding that, you know, weaving and carving in these kinds of skills are integral for our storytelling too and connection, as we've been talking about. How important is it the skills aren't lost? I think it's just incredibly um, important. Um, you know, we've, we've experienced so much loss through the dispossession of country, um, invasion of country, being told where to live, what to do, where to go, what, you know, every aspect. And we could still argue that that still happens today. Um, we are so um, impacted by the legacy of colonialism and the dominant white culture. And, uh, you know, for, and those um, for us mob that are on the coastal areas and were the ones who have had to bear the, the, the full brunt of that initial invasion and the legislation that denied us from speaking our language. Um, remote communities and the further away from the first points of contact is why they are able to speak their language as their first language and have all the retaining major of majority of their stories. Um, even being I'm involved with the Wild Dog Project, which is also part of Tanandi. And um, I'm involved with that as the song woman. And I've been involved with learning Narunga language for, um, probably started learning about 12, 13 years ago. And as a singer-songwriter, to now be able to write songs in Narunga language, um, being, as, being as a singer-songwriter a bucket list for me, but now to actually, like, do it. So I'm sort of... That's where I really connect my weaving and language together. And I just, you know, um, people sort of go, well, you, you know, what don't you, what don't you do, you know? But <laughs> I, get, I don't know, I like it, I get bored. So I get that, I like the diversity of, oh, I'm going to do this, I'll just write some songs and I'll do this. Then I'm going to weave, oh, I'll use that material. And I live at home on my own, so my, I don't have any stress. My whole home is a, an art space for whatever, um, and yeah, I was like, oh, I've got visitors, I better clean the table. Uh, I've got visitors, I better make, I better make a lounge, lounge chair for them to sit on, you know? Um, but yeah, it's just important on so many, so many levels for me. And for me, it's that whole thing of like, I've only been making these mats for the last two years. So 
it's it's interesting that you know for me when people come and watch me put my maps together they go that looks really hard and I said no it's really easy actually I said use your imagination look at something and break it down and draw lines to it and go there's your map and they go ah oh, I didn't think of it like that no way yeah well it's easy but for me um because I started as a painter so I started doing acrylics and so that's where it's like well going from that to something else is because um, the challenge for me was the 25th anniversary of Marbo. How are you going to uh, actually acknowledge your dad? And I went like, well, I can't paint him because yeah, I'm not a portrait painter. So it's like, well, let me... And I went, I love his maps he drew for the court case. So I said, okay, let me do those as something. And I went like, I have bamboo. I'll, just, I'll make a map using that. And I thought, how do I represent the the boundaries between the people. And I had a bag of shells that, um, mariner shells from Tasmania. And then in that bag also with the mariner shells were black crow. And I thought, they're a nice little shell, they're nice and shiny, they can become the pieces that I need to do on my map. So that's how I came to, to use those shells in my original maps. But then it was um, just looking at what you have around you to actually utilise in those things and, and acknowledge where you get it from and the people who gave it to you. Because I remember collecting those shells on the beach with um, Lorna Greeno, who actually took me out this day to say, I'm gonna show you how to look and what a mariner shell looks like on the beach. And we were sitting there with, the, had the best yarns and it was just, we had like four hours just sitting, looking at the water, looking for shells, but looking at the water and just going, okay, it's cold now, let's go. Because, <laughs> you know, we're in Tasmania, it's cold. And, and for me, um, I've never been asked to actually do anything online because, um, well, sometimes, you know, an artist sort of goes, well, this is my work and, you know, I don't want to share it yet because, you know, I want to be greedy and just keep it to myself. But when people come into my space, then I share. But for the online thing, you know, I, I get frightened to go, well, you can be, you can, people can take your things and just exploit what you do. So then I go, well, you know, a lot of my family stuff's already been taken. So I'd like to keep some stuff to myself. So I choose not to do online things because of that whole fact that, you know, during the whole fight for land that my dad did, we lost a lot of him during that time. We also lost a lot of imagery and lots of things and we have no, you know, we have no control over things. So I'm trying to just sort of pull it back to go, let's maintain our own cultural control. Because if we give too much, then we're exploited. So, yeah, so that's my way of looking at online things. So, yeah. I guess, I guess that leads on to talking about materiality and, and selection. You were talking about selection of, of materials. Um, I was reading an interesting uh, article or a book on materiality by Petra Langberent who describes materiality as the moments when the materials become willful actors and agents within artistic processes, entangling their audience in a web of connections. 
I guess selection of materials tells a story and has uh, connotations to it. Um, and also these materials disrupt, as, as Tanya said last night, and they obstruct and they, they interfere with social norm and they talk about our culture. But I'm wondering selection of introduced goods like plastic and human-made fibres and materials and tin and metal and some of these impure objects. How, how does these these goods translate? Do they translate story? Do they talk about and reflect on European and white invasion and occupation? It's kind of a loaded question. But I think it's really important that we have materials that have been used for generations and then since that time, it's amazing the incorporation of these other materials, but they still tell that story. Would you agree? Do you think that's fair to say? They, they still tell that story? Well, for me, stepping into the realm of actually making things with bamboo, it's actually taboo because it's usually a men's realm. And so I'm breaking protocol by actually using it. But one of the things is I'm doing it completely different. You know, one of the artists said to me when I first did my maps, you know, the comment that was thrown to me was, oh, I did those a long time ago. And I went, and? What does that mean? You mean I can't do it because I'm challenging what you've just done? So guess what? I'm ready for a fight. <laughs> so I decided to go bigger. <laughs> and so, and for me, just stepping in doing that and the, the use of plastics now, because I use, in my map that I've made here, I've used PLA plastic, which is a 3D plastic. And so the shapes that I have in my map are stars. These stars derive from a grain of sand. Now, on, on Murray Island, there's only one beach that gets this star sand. And so when I was eight, my dad took me there and he sat me down and... Because there's seven of us sitting on the beach and he's going, close your eyes, and we're all going like, OK, close your eyes, put your hand out. He goes, no, close your eyes. And then he puts the sand on our hands and he says, now wipe the sand. And when you wipe the sand, you look and there's star shapes in the sand. And then we thought, our dad was really, he's a magic man. He can make this happen. It was like, oh, how cool is that? You know, and then, so we all got a bottle and collected sand and took it home with us. And so I still have that sand. And I took it to um, the microscopic labs in Sydney and I asked them to put it underneath the microscope because I wanted to see what they look like. And so I did. And then I said, can you get a 3D read off a grain of sand? And they said, yep. And I went, really? <laughs> I said, can you do mine for me? They went like, oh, you'll never see it again. I said, that's OK, it's only a grain of sand. <laughs> so I, um, I let them do it. So then a month later, they contact me and go, we'll just send you the PLA code to your um, email. And so then I started printing these stars off and like, they're beautiful, just to, and like, just to have the story to tell them about where I got it and how, you know, that connection. And so for me, when I did my tug-eye map, because I needed stars, I utilised those as my stars for my map. And so that's a full connection to, you know, what it is that has a lot of meaning to me 
as, you know, as a connection to the bamboo and the stars. So for me, that's, you know, that's how I work and, you know, and plastics are maybe the thing of the future. But, yeah, I enjoy, I actually enjoy challenging myself with different materials too. So, yes. John, I'm interested to know about the selection of the bullocks and then incorporating these fantastic colours and sitting in front of this amazing design behind us. Yeah. I did a story about Great Escape. It's a Great Escape. Um, what what they call it? Um, I forgot. Anyway. What the color Oh, the insect. It's about insect. Some of the insect that, that, during bushfire, they will escape quick. The fire will be quicker than. So, what I did is trying to make them. Not, what I'm thinking is, a couple of few insects will try escape, passing, um, try to jump on a, on a, get a itch on a kangaroo passing by, trying to beat the fire, you know? That's what I did. And so, some will make it, some won't, from bushfire. That's what the story about in the back. Uh, I find the bullocks. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the bullock again. Mm. It, uh, oh, I forgot. I got too many painting on every bullock. <laughs> I don't know which one you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, okay. Oh, I forgot. The skull. The skull. Oh, the skull, yeah. What's that story there? Mm. Oh. In the story or just because you like painting it? Yeah, I like painting it, but uh, I forgot that story. Didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> all right, John. One, one book then, you know? Yeah. One day, so. Yeah. Margaret, I was going to ask you yeah, about the cross crossover and cross-cultural, again, use of the Boab for trade and how the BOAB was used to, I guess, send that message about how important country is. Did you want to talk about that? I think back in the, back in the days, you know, uh, the BOAB that was used as, as trade if, if I'm, If a non-indigenous person was, I don't know, if he wanted to give that somebody something, or you know that, or that give it back in exchange, or if um people was passing through country, you know that give them exchange for bowhead, you know, exchange of something. Um, actually, I went to Canberra a few years ago, and I saw something that's been there for a very long time. It's been carved really early, and it's. Yeah, it's been good. I mean, but it's all about trade, and I think we still do that today, um, but in different, 
basically in different format now. Um, yeah. I really lost for words. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, that's all right. Um, yeah. I guess um, it's just sort of looking at the correlation that, you know, we have different aspects and outlooks on country. Yeah. And how it was used as a vehicle to create a message. Yeah. Um, and how we have to, you know, translate that into the material for their mob. I'll just wrap up now. We've got a few minutes left, but um, I just want to ask and, and just talk about another concept around materialism um, and material. This comes from Summer's article, The Lives and Afterlives of Objects describes the materiality of the works we study, we collect and exhibit are both lost and found, past and present. Equally important, they embedded to varying degrees with the lives of their makers, carrying their own narratives across time and space in ways that are often difficult to untangle from the stories of the people who have produced them. I'm just wondering if if you think, panel, if the lives of yourselves as makers embedded in the artworks, if that's difficult for viewers to untangle, is it important that they understand those stories and narratives? I, th I think it is because it's a connection to, for me, it's a connection to my past. Because a lot, of, a lot of people know Mabo, but it's that thing of like, there's other stories that underline what Mabo is. And you know, there's a whole plethora of stories that can be told, but it's, it's the medium in which you want to use it as a vehicle to tell the story. And for me, just having that connection, and you know, even with my children, I have seven children, and they all watch what I do. They don't understand it sometimes, but they, they sort of go like, mum's just doing her thing, we'll just leave her and then come back and see it after. And then when they actually see what I've done, then they question me about what it is, why I did it and how come, you know, how come it ended up looking like that. And so, yes, I, I break it all down for them so then they, when, if someone asks them, they can actually then tell them and feel confident about telling that story because that's how... Our stories will always be told through the art. Is when you inform and you inform properly to people that that is continuous. And for me, I um, yeah, I just enjoy the process to actually share share stories. And so this is just another medium of telling those stories and keeping them alive. Anyone else want to say a few words just to finish? Yeah, um, people ask me the same question. How, how the hell you you, you painting skull? And I told that uh, bullet skull, you know, cow skull. And I tell them, well, oh, don't you forget, I was a stockman when I was young. <laughs> stockman is a, a ringer. And now you plant pronounce Yeah. Anyway. 
Don't, don't forget, I, I used to be a stockman when I was young. <laughs> yeah, thank you. used to ride them and now you yeah, paint you them. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything, comments they'd like to, to finish with? Um, I think it's also just an awareness around um, for Nutanjari people with the reeds. Like, I don't live on country, but quite often when I've been with Annie Allen or down there, the, the reeds and that are being impacted by the blocking of the flow of the rivers. And then that impacts on how much availability of the reeds are they growing. And the places where Annie Allen and other Nutanjari elders and those who are living on country, they're not where they were. And they're having to access, and she's got like a partnership with a farmer where she's able to go and collect her, the, the, the reeds to continue her weaving practice. And, you know, and that is a direct impact of the environmental damage. And I think, you know, that we need to be aware and, and share that message that this is impacting on, you know, traditional Naranjeri people about the um, access and having that resource on country that thrived and was there because we wove a lot of everything that we ever needed in life and they were big pieces and it was men's and women's business. You know, colonialism tried to change the narrative of our culture. The men and women would make the baskets at Raukan, our mission, but only the women were allowed to sell them. So they tried to change the perception so it's a whole process of that reclaiming what it's about. And even like I've travelled a lot on Nudgeri country and I'm yet to find the, 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 the traditional reeds. So again, it's that impact of farming and, and taking over our country. And so I think part of the weaving is also like, well, even when I do workshops, it's about telling people that stuff. It's not like, oh, come along and learn to weave. No. It's about giving you the history and telling you the impacts as well and why it's really important for us to um, do that cultural revival and maintenance and that's um, an awareness. We come together, um, you know, for the loss of a loved one or a birth of a new child. But first we come together with our art and our culture. So it's to keep, to keep that alive and keep that strong um, yeah, so today we got, um, I got a, my mum, my beloved mother, who I love, um, and my two nieces, they actually got some, some of the bulb nuts down there as well. So yeah, three, de three generation, I think, fourth one too small yet. So, yeah. Well, thank you. I just want to um, thank our artists for sharing today. Um, it's been an incredible panel discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, John. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Gail. And thank you, Sonia. Thank, please thank you, Alice. Tarnandi is presented by the Art Gallery of South Australia with principal partner BHP and support from the Government of South Australia. View the virtual tour online at agsa.sa.gov.au.